ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Constructing the world of classic cinema. I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. We don't have Samantha Ellis with us today, which is always a bummer, but she is with us in spirit. But we do have another amazing guest on our road to 100 episodes. It is the greatest, my same initialed fellow classic film thespian. It is Karina Longworth. Karina, how are you? I'm great. Thanks. We appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. The running joke on the podcast is that there is an unintentional rivalry between you and I because we both have the same initials and we both talk classic films. Uh, so so to have a meeting of the minds uh, is really the apotheosis of what this show is about. So I appreciate oh, it. Cool. Thanks for having me. You are welcome as a longstanding classic film lover. You're always welcome on the show. But for people who don't know who you are, which would be shocking if they're listening to this podcast and they're not listening to yours, can you give us a little kind of quick notes version on You Must Remember This, your love of classic films, all of that? So for undergraduate, I went to art school and I it was during this time in the kind of the late 90s where... I was exposed to a lot of stuff about like culture jamming and, and found footage and video art. And I was doing work in that vein about the media I was watching, like movies and TV shows. And when I graduated in 2012, there just kind of wasn't really anywhere for work like that to go. It was pre, or sorry, 2012, 2003 is when I graduated undergraduate. And there just wasn't really anywhere for that kind of work to go. There was no YouTube. It wasn't right for film festivals or galleries. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not supposed to be an artist, so I'll just be an academic. And so I went to graduate school at NYU, and I got a degree in cinema studies, and my focus was on the history of Hollywood. But I just started getting work writing film criticism about contemporary films right away before I even finished my graduate degree. And so I became a film critic. And then after about 10 years of that, I just really burned out on contemporary cinema, especially when you're a film critic for a newspaper, as I was. You are expected to see every movie that comes out and have an opinion about it, whether you write about it or not. And I just, like, didn't care. (laughs) I found that there was maybe 30 films in a year that I really cared about, but I was expected to see and have opinions about 8 to 10 a week. And so I had to figure out some way to change my life. And I was really longing to get back to the study of classic Hollywood. So I quit my job and then I tried a few things. I became like an adjunct professor and I wrote a few books for hire, but I felt like there wasn't really a venue for the kind of work I wanted to do. And I had to create it. And so I started hearing in my head the sound of the podcast and then I just had to figure out how to make it. Well, now you must remember this has become its own juggernaut. I mean, it's impossible to have the term classic film and podcast as someone who is who knows without having yours brought up all the time as kind of this gold standard, which is amazing that a classic film podcast has that power. Like, it seems like it's strange to say, but... If there's this history, I guess, that is just so powerful that makes it such a, an icon of, of the podcasting world. Is that weird for you to hear? 
Well, yeah, because, you know, when I started it, I really didn't know that I would be here six years later talking to you. (laughs) I was just kind of in a desperate situation career-wise where I didn't know what to do and I had to do something. And so I just thought I would make this thing to kind of show what I could do and maybe it would lead to something else. You know, maybe I would make three or four episodes and then I'd get hired as like a researcher at TCM or something. But what ended up happening is it just kind of took off right away and people wanted to be in business with me to like help sell ads for me and just kind of acquired a really large listenership over the first year or so. And so, yeah, after about a year and a half, I was able to turn it into my full-time job. Set the bar high for all of us. It's a classic film (laughs) podcasting world. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, you're right. You're right that it is totally weird that so many people would listen to a classic film podcast. And the only explanation I have for that is that I've sort of periodically done seasons that appeal to people who wouldn't think of themselves as being into classic film. Like I did a season about Charles Manson and his connections in Hollywood. And and even something like the series I did called Dead Blondes, like that kind of appeals to people who have an interest in true crime. So it's almost a Trojan. I mean, I feel like everything I do is kind of a Trojan horse where it's like <laughs> you promise scandal and you promise murder and sex. And then you're actually talking about like what it was like to be a woman trying to do a job in 1932. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, oh, one angle of it is the, the secrets and mysteries. It's a smart hook. I love that you structure your seasons around themes often more than just, here's this one period of history. Rather, it's like a disparate range of things. Like the Dead Blondes is a good example of a unifying thread that brought out all of these similar stories, but gave a chance to highlight the individuals. And I know you are currently cooking up a new season. How do you come up with what you would like the focus of the next season to be? The one that's about to come out? Do you have just a list? I'm not sure. Just a long list of, oh, I'd love to do all of these topics and then kind of organically shape them into seasons and then decide which makes the cut for your next. And then I'd love to hear about the next season as well. But I'm, I'm just interested in the process of what you decide to tackle. Right. Well, definitely at the beginning, back in 2014, I did have that list. And then I exhausted it at some point. And so over the past two or three years, it's actually been really a struggle to figure out what to do stuff on. I feel like the last time I felt really like an idea dropped in my lap and I felt really excited about, like, I have to do this right now was when I did the season on Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. But Mm. since then, it's been really like every time I finish a podcast season, I've been like, I don't know if I want to do this again. Um, unfortunately, like the situation I'm in right now is that up, basically up to this point over the past six years, I've been like, in order to get the podcast out there, I've had to have contracts with podcast networks. And so they you know, usually demand that you do a certain number of episodes a year. I don't know if I would have necessarily done as many podcast seasons as I have over the past two or three years, if I hadn't had contracts like that. And if I hadn't had something over my head that was like, you got to make 12 episodes, you know, before June. So that's been a motivator to just be like, what can I do? What can I do? Like, what am I interested in right now? How can I tie a few ideas together? But with the Polly Platt season, it was really different because about a year ago, actually over a year ago, I think it was March or April, through a producer who I work with on other projects named Stacey Share, I was connected to Polly Platt and Peter Bogdanovich's daughters, Sashi and Antonia. And Sashi had this copy of Polly's unfinished, unpublished memoir, 
and she just really felt like it was time to get her mom's story out there. So she shared it with me, and I started talking to the two daughters. And at first I wanted to, you know, we all wanted to try to publish it as a book where can't publish what Polly wrote just by itself because it is unfinished. And so I would was trying to figure out different ways to kind of flesh it out in book form. And then a couple of people in the book world were really discouraging to me. And they were like, nobody's ever heard of this lady. You basically like won't be able to sell this book. And so I got really angry <laughs> and I was like, I'll show you. And so I decided to do it as a podcast season to show that her story is fascinating. And the reason why nobody knows who she is or nobody's heard her story is because gatekeepers have historically not given the page counts and, and big doorstop biographies to the women of Hollywood. They've given them to David O. Selznick or Alfred Hitchcock or whoever, and they've ignored women who had these huge behind-the-scenes contributions. So I've been basically been working on this as a podcast season since last summer. And because I have this document that Polly wrote, that's the, the backbone of it. But because she didn't finish the document, I had a lot of questions. And so I had to sort of start. I don't usually do a ton of interviews for You Must Remember This season. I usually do archival research mostly. But this was a, a process of doing a ton of archival research and then talking to everybody who was alive who would talk to me to help answer some of the questions I had about the material. Well, what's fascinating too, and I'm sure it was, you know, unintentional when you were putting this together, is that this is coming out as TCM has their podcast about Peter Bogdanovich. So you have these two different worlds kind of colliding and having these different sides of the story. How do you look at having this overarching world of Bogdanovich and Platt coming out at the same time and, you know, finally getting both? You literally have both sides of the story coming out at the relatively close together. That usually doesn't happen in Hollywood. Yeah, it's a weird coincidence. I didn't know about TCM's podcast until about six weeks ago when I was almost finished with the Polly Platt podcast. And I've decided not to listen to it because I really don't want Polly's story to be an answer to Peter. Right. Um, really, the guiding force behind my podcast is what she wrote. But I think it's good for both of us because I think that one can sort of lead listeners to the other. I just think that it kind of makes sense for Peter's story to come out first and then Polly's story to come out because... In a way, that would be the case whether TCM had done this podcast or not, because Peter's story has kind of been out in the world, and people generally know who he is, but they don't know Polly's story. Yeah. Well, to look at the work you've done on, you must remember this in your book, Seduction, about Howard Hughes and the actresses that he's worked with. We see this all the time with powerful male figure and the women around them and how these women really struggle to assert their identity and be sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing. Is that, I guess, a compelling hook for a lot of the work you're doing, you've done in terms of giving these women the voices that they were denied when they lived? Or even though some of them are still around, obviously, as in the case of Howard Hughes, Carrie Moore is still, still with us. But it seems right. to have been a theme in, in a lot of the work you've been doing. Yeah, and Terry Moore has definitely taken charge of her own narrative. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, I think that it is difficult with people who are no longer with us to be like, I am going to tell their story because then you're kind of doing what, like, the studio system did for them. Yeah. But what you can do and, and what I tried to do with the Howard Hughes book is 
to just really do, I guess you'd call it historiography of examining the way these people were written about, whether it's through studio press releases or gossip columns or whatever it is, and kind of compare it to what they put out there on their own in terms of what they wanted people to know and what maybe people in their lives wrote in sort of tell-alls or whatever it was, and just kind of put all these fragments together and let the truth come out somehow through this kind of multiple fragmented portrait. And with Polly, it's a, it's a slightly different thing because I have this writing of hers and then I am able to talk to you because she, she only died in 2011. There are a lot of people in her life who are still around. And I, I am really trying to tell Polly's story, but there are certain things she didn't write and there are certain things she didn't want to write. And so for parts of her story, I'm just trying to kind of figure out what happened. And so I do have to kind of take other people's points of view into account because she's not here for me to press her and be like, well, no, but like what really happened in 1994? Yeah. So it is kind of like, I am trying to sort of do autobiography by proxy, but that's absolutely impossible because she didn't give me all the answers. So at some point you have to kind of let other voices in. Well, it's something I wanted to talk about, and having listened to the first episode that's come out, you have a, a great story that's included about, I think it's Sherry Lansing and how Howard Hawks tells Peter Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. that's the girl that you should marry. And the, well, the emphasis of on aesthetics, especially in the 1970s, when we had someone like Barbara Streisand, who was considered an unconventional beauty, or, or Billie Jean King, and you have Polly there as well, this concept of the beauty standard. I, just listening to that story, I was I was looking at, it's so ironic that in this time of great change with regards to what is beautiful, that the old guard, is, as espoused by Howard Hawks, is still kind of focused on, on looks. Yeah, and it, I think it's not even looks it, in, that, in that specific story. And, you know, one small correction I'll make is that Howard Hawks basically, so for people who haven't listened, right. Howard Hawks and Sherry Lansing are at lunch with Polly Platt and Peter Bogdanovich. And Sherry Lansing later became the, the first female head of a studio. But at that time, she was in her mid-20s and she was trying to be an actress and Howard Hawks was sort of her mentor. And she gets up and she's very beautiful. She's young and very beautiful. And she gets up and goes to the bathroom. And Polly is still sitting there. And Hawks says to Peter, who was Polly's husband, that's the kind of woman you should be with. And so the, like, the small correction I want to say is that it, he didn't say that's the kind of woman you should marry because it's, it's almost like what he's saying is like you should be having affairs with like hot dames. Right, right. Um, and so the fact that he would say it with Polly sitting there is like, you know, your wife should know that this is the kind of lifestyle you should lead. And the thing about Polly is that, like, if you look at photographs of her from that time, like, she's a fox. She's, like, yeah. she has these, like, long legs and blonde hair. But she was not as young as Terry Lansing and certainly later not as young as Sybil Shepard. And she wasn't as, like, self-consciously glamorous. And her personality was not docile. She absolutely was masochistic and self-effacing in that she would do anything it took to get these movies made. But she was also really outspoken and she always said what she believed and she always said what she thought. Even today, I mean, that's not what people necessarily expect from women. Like they, they would prefer if women looked great and spoke less. 
Exactly. And I think that often flies in the face of what people assume of the time period in which you're looking at, which second wave feminism and women's liberation. And, you know, even though nobody did bra burning, it's kind of become synonymous with that era. And it seems almost shocking. I, I mean, listening to that story and you're thinking there's this progress that's been made for women and that reminder that, no, have things really changed? Maybe not. Well, that story was from like around 1967. So obviously the feminist movement kind of gained steam throughout the 70s. Mm-hmm. But Polly came from an earlier generation. She didn't think of herself as a feminist. And if, if anything, she and, and women who were about her age working in Hollywood at that point were scared to align themselves with women's lib because they didn't want to. There's this line that I say like later in the season, but it's like they didn't want to rock the boat because they wanted to be in the boat. You know, they wanted to be in the boys club and they didn't want to like throw the men out. They wanted to be there side by side with them. And so it was just sort of a, a philosophical difference, you know? Yeah. Well, I think we see that still today. I was just having this conversation with somebody a couple of days ago about Catherine Bigelow still being our only best directing female director. And, you know, even then that movie is not necessarily, it's, it's still very much a, a masculine film and what the definitions of wanting to play in that boys club are and how that has changed and it's everything old is new again and nothing seems to you know progress still is very very small i have to admit i'm someone who is more knowledgeable than pockets of the world in when it comes to classic films and yet polly platt has been a complete new introduction to me and i had the same reaction in sort of discovering her and i'm so looking forward to your future episodes, but it reminded me of how I felt when I learned about like Beth Meredith, who was Michael Curtis's wife and was hugely instrumental behind the scenes um, and uncredited for like assisting him with Casablanca and so many of his films, or Gwen Bearden mm-hmm. and Bob Fosse. And speaking of the old is new again, you know, there's 20 years difference between all of those women. And for Polly Platt, who's someone that people are hopefully now discovering, has such an instrumental role in Bogdanovich's film beyond being a production designer and but like that she was instrumental in casting decisions and in shaping things and just the the general aesthetic and how much it changed when she was no longer working with him and that's always something like the idea of the amount of women who in seeking to like wanting to be part of something and wanting to make like films and make the best stories they could and aligning themselves with male partners to unlock that it's crazy that there's so many of those stories out there for such a long amount of time and that we're really just now starting to kind of get to have them highlighted in this way. Obviously, like highlighting women's stories has been um, a huge subset of You Must Remember This, but with Polly, is there anything in your in your discoveries with her films in particular that you were surprised by yourself? Because I'm assuming, like me, like I watched Paper Moon very young and did not know about Polly Black, but knew how I felt about the movie. Has it been re-changing how you're looking at the films she was involved with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was so instrumental in using design as storytelling. And that included, in many cases, 
making a case to the director and, and the producers as to like changing the location of a film. The novel Addie Prey, which Paper Moon is based on, was set in the forest in Georgia. And she went on a location scout and was like, this doesn't feel like it matches the story. And she was somebody who had driven across the country by herself and had like crossed the country in a car a couple of times. And, and she felt like she had a sense of, of the landscape of America and like what different places looked like and felt like. And so after going to Georgia with her location manager, Frank Marshall, later to be producer of many, many things, she was like, you know where we got to go? We got to go to Kansas. And so they went to Kansas and they took photographs and she brought them back to Peter and she made the case like this movie needs to be relocated to Kansas. And he agreed with her. And so she actually did that same thing with changing the locations on several films, including What's Up Doc and this movie she made that is kind of unavailable now, but it's pretty interesting called The Thief Who Came to Dinner with Ryan O'Neill and Jacqueline Bissett. So she was always doing things like that. And then, you know, I mean, there's so many surprises, but like one thing I didn't know until I read her memoir in which we cover later in the season is that she was supposed to direct the film, The War of the Roses, and she developed it for years. And then, you'll, I mean, you'll have to listen to, you know, find out what happens. But that's a movie that I think a lot of people have heard of. It was one of the highest grossing movies of its year. And the fact that she was like, oh, really got very close to directing it is, is fascinating. That absolutely is. I'm desperate to know where What's Up Doc was supposed to take place, if not San Francisco. <laughs> so it was written to be in Chicago. And she was like, I don't think it's funny to see Barbara Streisand with her New York accent in Chicago because it's too similar. It's like she's not a fish out of water. We need to find a place where she'd be a fish out of water. And so Polly, again, like went from city to city, taking photographs, trying to like figure out where this screwball comedy should be set. And she got to San Francisco and kind of immediately like, oh, with the hills, like we could do this chase. It would be funny. And then she checked into the Hilton Hotel and it was the first hotel she had ever been in that had an escalator in the lobby. I guess that was a new thing in the early 70s. And she was like, oh, we could do so much comedy around this escalator. And so she, again, like made the case to Peter, like it's got to be San Francisco. And then he came and she showed him like how they could sort of rework the story to be in these different locations. And he was like, you're right. It's so instrumental to how it comes across. Like you think of that, the Chinese dragon and the hills and the bike. And it's, mm -hmm. it's also, I mean, obviously not to discredit production designers because every department is so crucial to an overall project, but having someone be able to shape changes in the script so much or to see possibility of comedic play in the elevator and in using a space more than just this would look good or this will take we can do these scenes here it really does speak to such a broader influence on a film i love that and they're also so disparate. Like, the, the films they did together, like you just mentioned Paper Moon, which is the Depression era, and then ultimately in the Midwest, and then What's Up, Doc, and then the last picture show in the sort of very little tumbleweed town. She probably got some uh, miles, some nice frequent <laughs> miles back in the day. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think both Last Picture Show and Paper Moon, in terms of aesthetics, they hew really closely to a certain kind of American realism. And that's really what she believed in philosophically about design is that she, you know, up to that point, 
she's talked about this and written about this really eloquently. Like up to that point in movies, generally design was bent towards fantasy. And so you see Audrey Hepburn in these Givenchy clothes in every movie, no matter what character she's playing. Every actress wakes up in the morning and their hair is perfectly curled and they're wearing lipstick. And she was like, I want to see a movie where people look like real people and we can use design to tell stories in a different way. And so Last Picture Show and Paper Moon, she's really doing that. And then in the middle, there's What's Up Doc, where she's like, I believe in realism, but this story is a live action cartoon. So we have to have the design bend towards that. Well, it's fantastic to look at. She was only credited with, I think, three screenplays. One is a short, and then she's credited on targets as for the story. So there's five in total, but really she only did, I think, three full full feature screenplays. And her first one was... Uh, that's actually not, that's not actually right. Okay, good, because IMDb has that listed, so... <laughs> well, maybe if you're just talking about Peter's movies, but... So she was credited for the story of Targets. They wrote mm. that screenplay together. She wrote the short Lieberman in Love, which mm. Christine Lottie directed, which won the Oscar for Best Short Film. She wrote Pretty Baby, which she also produced. She wrote a film called Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, and a film called A Map of the World. And she wrote many, many, many other screenplays that just didn't get produced. Okay, that that makes more sense. Yeah, because I was looking at IMDb and they have the five, and I was like, there's only three that actually are feature lengths that that made it to production, which is unfortunate. But I was curious. I mean, because I'm probably the only person I think that likes Pretty Baby, which is says a lot about me than anything else. <laughs> but that was that was her really? first. Really, yeah. people don't like that movie. I don't think people like that movie. I I don't know. Maybe I'm talking to the wrong people because I know that when <laughs> when you start describing the plot to people, they look at you askance and they're like, you like that film? I'm like, it's a Louis Mall movie. It's beautiful production design. It's a really complex feature. But yeah, they hear Brooke Shields' child prostitute and they're like, no, we're good. Um, but but I'm, I mean, I'm curious about that specifically being her first credited script and the controversy of that movie already. I don't know if that's something that's a spoiler for future episodes, but I wanted to ask about it because I never get to ask about Pretty Baby because nobody likes it. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole episode about Pretty Baby, but even at the time it was criticized for being child pornography. I think that my point of view on the movie is that Polly and Louis Mall are absolutely not condoning the prostitution. Oh, yeah, yeah. And as you'll hear when you listen to the episode, I mean, I think that there is a real case to be made that first of all, there's a lot of ways in which Pretty Baby is Polly's sort of personal autobiography in terms of not sex work, but she was somebody who felt abandoned by her mother and she worried that she was abandoning her own children. So this is a story about like mothers abandoning their children and the worst case scenario of what could happen if you abandon your child. I think it's also about 70s Hollywood. You know, one thing is uh, there's an actor who Holly wanted to cast in the movie and didn't cast in the movie. I won't give the story away. I don't tell you who the actor is, but he was sort of obliquely involved in a major sex scandal that happened at that right around the same time. And there is something very metaphorical in Pretty Baby, I think, about this idea of putting very, very young women on a pedestal, but which is completely dehumanizing. 
Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, that's what I find so fascinating about the movie is, you know, I think people hear the plot line and they immediately turn their brains off and then watching it. I mean, it's a very cynical, dark, unrelenting feature. And it's just, it's a movie that's always stuck with me. Jordan, have you seen it? I have not. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if we could ever know. get away with doing it on the podcast. <laughs> But, but but yeah, it's a future talking point, I think. It's, it's a really, I remember when Warner Archive, I think, put it out on DVD and I bought it and everybody was like, why, why are they putting out this horrific movie about Brooke Shields playing a child sex worker? And I was like, please watch it. And I don't know if anybody did, but, but it's, I remember asking Keith Carradine about it, TCM, the film festival one year, and I think he was very shocked that I asked because I don't think anybody asked him about that movie but we had a really good conversation about it so turned out to be to be beneficial yeah I'm really excited for you to hear the episode of the podcast yeah because it's, it's real it's really complicated and thorny I would I would expect nothing less so Drea were you going to say something I was just going to say yeah you had mentioned something that will be a fun reveal in that episode about a casting decision Polly made. And I think that's another way that her influence on films was unusual in terms of her role. And obviously the irony of her um, having been someone who had been a Sybil Shepherd <laughs> proponent for The Last Picture Show mm -hmm. turned into a much twistier tale. But is there something like in your exploration, did she have a, just a particular affinity for looking for casting? And because in ways it is, it's tied to aesthetic, it's tied to story so much. But it's also, I think casting is one of those very, it's, what is the, what am I looking for? It's just an unpraised art form. Like when someone is in a role and embodies it in this unique way and you have never seen them there before or doing that kind of work or, they, you know, it's rarely comes down to the casting decision as being credited for helping that. And I think it's so integral in so many things. Are there things about Polly's hand or interest in casting the films that, that came up or surprised you? Yeah, I mean, she definitely had an instinct for it. I think that she wasn't able to exercise that instinct later in her career. Ironically, when she became a producer, she was sort of, when she was working with James L. Brooks, she was really somebody who was kind of like guiding him through the process of making film rather than TV. And she wasn't so involved in the casting. But earlier than that, for sure, I mean, she's the one who suggested Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon. She's the one who found Brooke Shields in like a photograph book and, and said, we have to bring this girl in. She, she was somebody who throughout her career, whether she was involved in the casting of the actors or not, she was somebody who knew how to talk to actors. And so often in difficult situations on set, even though it wasn't her job, she would be the one who would go into Jack Nicholson's trailer and make sure that they got what they needed from him that day or whoever it was. I mean, on terms of endearment, certainly that was, that was a difficult set because there was conflict between Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine and, and Polly was instrumental in just sort of like getting them to the end of the shoot. And same on Witches of Eastwick, in which she wasn't technically a producer in terms of endearment either, but on Witches of Eastwick, she was just a production designer. She wasn't expected to be doing anything else. And she was really helpful in being able to talk to people in a way that got them over the hump of whatever the problem was.
What I have to ask too, you know, her being such a, a well-known figure, especially to that kind of inside Hollywood crowd, you know, you mentioned that she wanted to direct War of the Roses, which is very black comedy relationship story. But then I also read that the film Irreconcilable Differences, which also has Ryan O'Neill, was supposedly loosely based on her marriage to Bogdanovich. Having that that relationship kind of become this inspiration for other features and and other other creators kind of drawing from their their very public relationship for for entertainment value. Yeah, I mean, Polly was definitely angry about irreconcilable differences, and her her daughters aren't happy about it. And what they focus on is the things that the movie like where it diverges from the real story and like where it it sort of turns their parents into cartoon characters. But it's really undeniable that there's certain, I mean, I think that the Ryan O'Neill character is more based on Peter Bogdanovich than the Shelley Long character is based on Polly Platt. But there are some things that are definitely, you know, very similar. I mean, the, the irreconcilable differences depicts the wife sort of pitching in on the husband's screenplays and not getting credit for it. It's really fascinating to me the way that their relationship sort of hovered in the background of popular culture and certainly the consciousness of people in Hollywood. Now, I think that when Polly died, you listen to the, the first episode, so you know, like when Polly died, her obituaries were full of conversation about Polly Platt dies at the age of 72. Peter Bogdanovich's movies were never any good after she stopped working with him. And so it becomes this referendum on his career rather than her career. And it's like they were sort of tied together in the public imagination forever, even though they actually worked together for a very short period of time. And doing a podcast like this where you have so much information to draw from, were there elements of her life that you wish you could have got into the show, but for, you know, either narrative convenience or time, you just couldn't explore as fully as you wanted to? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's almost too many to list. And I wasn't able to use all of her memoir. There's a lot of stuff from her childhood that I had to cut. And there's a lot of anecdotes about specific movies that I had to cut. I, I'm still kind of writing the final episode, which deals with the last 15 years of her life. And I think I'm going to have to leave out, like, some, like she was very involved with the Austin Film Festival. I think I'm probably going to have to leave out most of that part of her life. And, you know, there's like various projects where she worked on them, but there's just not that much information available about them. Like there's this movie that she wanted to direct for Paramount. And, and like nobody can eat, everybody who knows about it, like can't even really remember what year, except that it was after Terms of Endearment. So maybe it was like 85. Jerry Bruckheimer wanted her to direct it. And it was going to be a sci-fi film about artificial intelligence. And Paramount was like, well, okay, we trust you, Jerry Bruckheimer, but we st she's never directed anything, so we still want her to direct a screen test. And so she directed a screen test in her house, and then they ended up not making the movie at all because they found, like, they just didn't, like, the studio basically didn't like how cold the AI character was. They wanted E.T., and it, it wasn't <laughs> E.T. But, yeah, it's like I was able to find out that, that that project existed, which is not in any book or anything. And I was able to talk to Jerry Bruckheimer, but he doesn't really remember that much about it. And so a lot of these things, it's like this project has really kind of opened my eyes to this idea that the film history that is sort of in the books and is on the record is incomplete because it's only information in it is stuff that somebody decided was important. And there's so much other stuff. And once people die, you can't find out about this other stuff. And even with people alive, 
most of the people who were in a position to know about this thing that happened like probably around 1985, it wasn't as personal to them as it would have been to Polly, so they don't remember that much about it. And that's that's always the frustrating thing about Hollywood, I think, is that there's such a rich history, and then you find those pieces of things that sound so amazing, but they've been lost to time. It's that weird, like, Hollywood irony of both revering history and then erasing it as soon as the time passes. That yeah. Those are always the stories that I'm, like, the most gripped by, but, you know, you hit that wall of actually running out of information. You're like, eh, this is where it ends. So, <laughs> well, I, I'm curious, you know, I know we're coming to the end of our time, but, you know, you've been committed to doing the show for, for so long. I know you've taken hiatuses and you've spaced the series out a bit more recently. You know, is there a big list still, you know, things you, you'd love to do on the podcast or is it more kind of finding the right thing that, that grips you and you want to follow it? How does that process work now that you are Karina Longworth, you know, capital K? Ah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, whatever that means, it doesn't help me come up with ideas. So, um, I don't have a list anymore. I don't know. Every time, I mean, as I said, every time I finish a podcast season, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do that again. But I do think if I do continue doing the podcast, I'm going to do it in a different way where it's more independent. And I'm just, I need to figure out what that is because I just don't want to be on anybody else's schedule anymore. Like, I only want to make the podcast when I really and move to do something. Like yeah. I think the best seasons are the ones where I've been like, oh shit, like you can tell the story of Jane Fonda and Jean Seberg together. You know, like when I have that kind of inspiration, I, I'm more excited about it. The process of doing it is easier. And I think the, the finished product is better than when I'm like, oh, I have to make 12 episodes in the next three months. Like give me an idea. Isn't so. that why we all got into podcasting so that it didn't feel like work? <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what I keep telling myself. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my show is so labor intensive that if I'm yeah. not really excited about an idea, then it it can feel like drudgery. So, yeah. Only excitement going forward. Yes, yes. And again, you, you inspire, you at least inspire me to be more awesome <laughs> with my podcast. So I got to gotta live up to those initials. So, Dre, <laughs> do you have anything else you want to you wanna ask? No. Well, A, Jane and Jean is my favorite. <laughs> so I'm oh, glad cool. that inspiration wow. struck. I'm, and it's mm -hmm. one of the ones that... I find what I appreciate, you must remember this so much, is because of the extent of research you do. There's so many podcasts that are conversational or just like, this is how I'm feeling right now, which is great. I don't want to invalidate anyone's feelings, <laughs> but it's so nice to, I finish them and I'm like, ooh, I feel like I get the credit for having read like nine books. And I did not. I just <laughs> sat here and drove and listened to this. It was also my favorite because I am my favorite and maybe my family's least favorite because it was definitely one that I was texting people a lot of, did you know? I did not know this. <laughs> did you know? Which is what everybody wants. I don't know. I'm just really excited about Polly Platt season. And like I said, I love, as, as much as it's embarrassing to admit, especially for people who live here in Hollywood and work in our field and we're all meant to know everything and it's just a lot of like one-upmanship when it comes to film history. Oh yeah, I knew that. Oh, I've seen that. I know that. And it's hard to like the fact that I had to admit I've not seen Pretty Baby. Oh, come on. <laughs> think of that. 
but um, I love the revelation that comes with things and also how detailed people's work is in a film beyond this is we often are such an auteur particularly in that time frame of oh this is one person's vision come to life and kind of negating that while also giving insight to someone who had a really particular stamp on um, American films and on a few true classics is really exciting for me and I'm I'm looking forward to see what I'm going to learn. I'm I'm also excited to watch Pretty Baby. So really that's well it's on it's on a couple of streaming services now so okay, i definitely good. suggest checking it out and then we're going to do this thing so the podcast season starts may 26th and we're going to do this thing where we encourage people once a week to watch a movie that is relevant to that week's episode and then i'm going to go on instagram live with some special guests hopefully to talk like you know about the movie and about the podcast episode every Tuesday night at 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. Oh, that's great. That's so awesome. So we're going to do one of those for Pretty Baby and, you know, a few other of these exciting movies. <laughs> yeah, Drea, I need you to watch Pretty Baby and let me know what you think. I know Sam will never watch it because it was made after 1965, but I need somebody on the show, too, and then let me know uh, what they think if I've set the bar way too high for the movie or not. But, but Karina, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. For people who don't know how to get in touch with you online, where can they contact you, find the episode, enjoy all your work, feel free to show. <laughs> well, the podcast you can find at youmustrememberthispodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast, just search for You Must Remember This. And then we have, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, mostly under at Remember This Pod. And then I'm on Twitter at Karina Longworth. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Drea Clark, where can fans find to get in touch with you online? I'm on Twitter at Vajraya Clark. And you also do your podcast where? I also um, host a contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya, which is on Twitter at Who Shot Ya Pod. And even though Samantha Ellis is not here, we're still going to tell you where you can get in touch with her. You can find her on Twitter at Classic Film Geek, and her website is Musings of a Classic Film Addict, which you can put into Google and find wherever you read your stuff. So, uh, And then you can, of course, get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you are listening via that, help us out and leave us a rating and review. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher FM, Player, all those things you can find us. We also have our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. And if you want to help support us with your actual coin, you can do that at patreon.com slash ticklish biz. We have our new tier open, The Taylor, which allows you to actually guest on a future episode. We have pins, we give away DVDs and Blu-rays. We just give you a lot of stuff for your, for your dollar as well as bonus content. So check it out. See if you like it. That's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Next time, we will be back with another special guest. We're not saying who it is, but you can try to guess who it might be based off of the movie that they picked. We'll be coming back to talk about the 1950 film noir, In a Lonely Place, which I know Drea absolutely love. Absolutely love. Yes, and I promise we will all three be back next time. So, till then.